0: Hello, dear friends. Welcome to a very special episode of The B-Side for the Film Stage website. Here we talk about movie stars, not the movies that made them famous or kept them famous, but the ones that they made in between. Uh, As always, I'm here with Connor
1: O'Donnell. Connor, how are you? I'm great, Dan. I am great. I am excited yeah. for this one.
0: Yes. So we're both very excited. Uh we've been looking forward to recording this episode. This was a listener's choice episode. Uh it was this this gentleman who we're going to be speaking about won a poll,
1: right, Connor? Yeah, this he was beat, he beat Audrey Hepburn. That was I like mean. the only yeah, that was the that was the competition, but quite I I think he beat out Audrey Hepburn, Omar Sharif. And correct uh, me
0: if I'm wrong, this was a poll. You know, we, when we talked, we did a few polls and, you know, um, it was like, whatever, we'll talk about the other people. We really wanted this guy to win. And yeah, what's yeah. great about this is our guest is someone we really wanted to talk about this guy with from the beginning of the pandemic, which is weird to say, but, <laughs> but, um, yeah. but we're happy to have her. Um, writer and critic Moiko Fuji is with us. How are you? Good to see you.
2: I am great.
0: <laughs> yeah. So our now our our subject is Tashira Mafuni, and you wrote this amazing piece for Criterion as part of it, it, it is his 100th birthday this year. And early, I believe it was early April, you wrote. Um, I'm just going to make sure I get the title right. Who's that man, Mafuni at 100? Yeah. And I see April 3rd is when it posted, and I think I feel like. Jordan Raup, who um, I started the film stage with, he's a good friend of me and Connor's. We early on, we all like passed it around, and 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 we were like, "Oh, this is great! If we do the Mafuni podcast, we got to see if Michael will be our guest." And sure enough, here we are, many months later. So I guess I will let me just say this about the piece: um, it's almost when we do these episodes usually we'll talk about what is it about this movie star that makes them so likable or transfixing or whatever the kind of the right way to describe them is like with keanu reeves we talked about he seems inherently kind right so that was something where we were like the kindness works like when you talk about why john wick works and blah 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 blah, blah, right now i feel like your your essay on Tashiro Mifuni is the answer to that exact question of what we're talking about because you're writing about basically what makes him the movie, the legend that he was and, and is, you know, through his work still. And so I guess if you want to just open us up, what is it about him that you love? How did you come to like see his work and all of that?
2: So um well, I'm really excited for this podcast because the essay mostly focused on his work with Kurosawa and for this time around, we watched five non-Kurosawa films and really the question I was finding myself asking um, was what do these other directors draw out about Mifune that Kurosawa can't? And that was a really exciting question for me. But in the Criterion essay, I was just... I, I really wanted to get to the bottom of why he's so hot. <laughs> <laughs> um, especially just because when I was younger and it was my grandmother's influence mainly, um, I tended to kind of... I'd watched them in Samurai, Yojimbo, and kind of like the canonical Kurosawa films, but I, I just saw them as like a thing that I should be seeing as part of like a Japanese cinematic education. And I was much more... my. I, I just love watching Ozu films or Hizuguchi films or not to say films with my mom, uh, mom and my grandmother and kind of like talking about how the woman worked in them. But um, as I write um, in the essay, I in college, um, I got really sick for like a few weeks and then, <laughs> with the flu and I just decided like, OK, I guess I should just like watch. Like and see what is up with all of it. <laughs> I just was like, I don't, I don't. I think it was like the scene in which he's, um, uh, bathing himself in the river in um, Seven Samurai, and Kurosawa just, looks, just, just close up to his ass, and you can see them twitch, like you can see it literally twitching. And then afterwards, when he's dying, you see it twitch again, and I'm like, oh there's something there about Mifune. Kind of, that's what I kind of got into in the essay.
0: No, and it's, uh, yeah, yeah, and it's a great, it, and you, you say a lot of great things, you know, I don't want to quote you back to yourself, but you say great things like, you know, Mifune, it's hard to n- not make him sound mythical, but then when you look at his real life, he kind of was mythical and right all of these different things where, you know, what he meant to kind of the idea of the Japanese man in even the world worldwide culture uh, along with Japanese culture in general. And all of that is so well said, but you're totally right. The reason for the season, the reason we are here is to talk about the stuff you made that wasn't with Kurosawa and I'm
2: really excited to talk about like a compare and contrast, but yeah, I mean, it's also, I mean, I really wanted to bring in the kind of angle that like, um, and I don't see a lot in film criticism, which is like kind of look at how Japanese critics saw these movies too, um, saw the saw the movies versus, say, um, American critics who were kind of seeing him through, I guess, like Western is a wrong word for it, but through Western eyes, basically, and how they were, he was being portrayed as kind of like the first, um, like, non white superstar
0: no no yeah no you're totally right and and um and i just while we're talking about your great work i just want to shout out i'll link to this in the article um you recently i think a little bit more recently wrote a great piece uh on Setsuko hara who you know from you know films like uh late spring and tokyo story and many others um so i just that's another recommendation just Kind of talking about what you what she meant to you and just what it is about her and and I'm less familiar with her work, admittedly, except from the Ozu movies. But um, it, just it, it it prompted me to go back and rewatch some moments and just really be like, wow, that is spot on. Anyway, Connor, tell us why don't you? What are the five B sides we are going to be
1: talking about today? Sure, Dan. Yeah, this was um. This was an interesting one to kind of weed through because obviously, ad- admittedly, right, like I, f- I feel like myself uh, and Dan, probably like most white dudes, right, are like only familiar with like, you know, the gr- mostly the greatest Kurosawa hits outside of maybe like
2: but Grand you-
1: Prix and like, yeah. you know, you know, I saw him at a young age, like I probably saw him in 1941 before anything else, right? <laughs> Um, Right, uh, ashamedly, kind of. Um, Well, but but
0: but but I was going to say you you've certainly seen more of his great work even than I have because I I admittedly high and low for my money is one of the greatest performances I've ever seen in my life. Right, so okay, I, I love that movie. I've seen it many times, and Seven Samurai and Rashomon and Yojimbo and you know those pictures, of course, but. You know, even the samurai children you were talking about. I have big blind spots. Throne of Blood, for, for, for example, is one it's huge one that I haven't seen. Right, you, Connor,
1: I do think you've seen yeah. far more than I have in that respect. I, but again, even those are like the you know the main kura the sick of right, the right. Kurosawa sixteen right that like people know right. Um, so going through this was a lot of fun because you know you and I Dan had a moment of like how to even wrap our heads around like what would be considered a B-side, right? Because just because we haven't seen something doesn't mean, right, it's a B-side. So we figured the line of demarcation is not one of the 16 Kurosawa movies. That was our, uh, that was our thing. So, um, but it did lead us to some, some interesting, interesting (laughs) stuff. So, uh, so we're so gonna, true. Yeah. We're going to first, we're going to basically like we do with a lot of, uh, actors that we've covered so far who have a decades spanning careers. We just decided we were going to pick one from each decade of his career. He technically started in the forties. Um, but mm-hmm. we just jumped into the or 1950 exactly with wedding ring, uh, directed by Keisuke Kinoshita. Um, and then we jump into the late 60s with the John Borman movie, Hell in the Pacific, with him mm. opposite Lee Marvin, which is a fascinating picture. Uh, and then we we jump ahead again a little bit to uh, 1971 to the uh terrence young movie uh western uh red sun which mm. will i'm sure mention basically is serves as like later, the, the blueprint yeah. for uh, i was gonna say later later he made a shanghai nude no it's it's basically this the same like movie but um but that's an <laughs> interesting one because it's this sort of international superstar melting pot yeah. of, a, of a movie yeah. um yeah <laughs> And, uh, and oh, then, yeah,
0: right, with Alain Delon as well, right? Right, right, right.
1: right. And, um, and then we'll jump ahead to 1982, uh, which is, I think, when you start... That's when you kind of start to see him get into, like, elder statesman type thing that, that a lot of actors show up in, where even if the movie's not that good, they're simply showing up because they are the actor that, like, represents a given genre um, or something like that. So this is a... Uh, it's a martial arts movie, sort of a fish-out-of-water uh, white boy martial arts movie with Scott Glenn um, directed by John Frankenheimer. So like, that's the other thing is like, they're all like interesting directors that he's working with. Definitely. And then we will finish it out with uh, what I believe is his third to last movie, um, at least according to IMDb uh, from 92 uh, a movie called Shadow of the Wolf where he plays an Inuit shaman among <laughs> other people who not who should not be playing inuits yeah a um, lot of
0: non a lot
1: of non inuit people playing yeah, inuits su- in that movie surprise surprise um but
2: uh <laughs> his <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs>
1: yeah his facial hair is half the performance yeah. in, uh, in and movie. yeah um But yeah, so we will, uh, yeah, I guess we'll just rewind. We'll go, we'll start, we'll dive into We got it. As you can tell, we got a bit to get through. So we'll dive into, um, I guess, his quick backstory. And Moeko, feel free to like, correct me if I'm glancing over anything. He basically, um, he was drafted into World War II, um, sort of partially used for his photography skills. And then uh, post World War II, he essentially tried to get a job in the camera department um, at uh, Toho. And mm-hmm. essentially, unbeknownst to him, his headshot was submitted into this this contest for new faces, essentially. Mm-hmm. And he wound up getting picked because he is one of the most handsome men who's ever lived. Uh, which is something I never really functioned to, but I will say... I. I don't care what your persuasions are watching a chunk of this dude's movies. Like it's really hard not to have a crush on him. Like it's, it's really hard. Like anyway, the camera, the camera, I mean, I don't know that
0: a camera has loved a subject more, more right? Uh, just in general, you know what I mean?
1: Anyway? Yeah. It's, uh, it's astonishing. So, uh, in this film in particular, so he does, he does a couple early movies, all basically either directed by or Kurosawa adjacent for, for a minute, his first three films, um, which were, uh, he does it. He has an appearance in a movie called snow trail, which Kurosawa wrote. Then he kind of gets into Kurosawa's band of regulars and he does two films. He does, Drunken Angel and Stray Dog, which are not our B-sides because they're Kurosawa. But I will say I highly recommend you check them out. They are yeah. both uh, really wonderful performances from him. I um,
2: think oh, he dances
1: so well. He dance. dances so well. I have to
2: watch this like. <laughs> um,
1: Yeah, he and it's it's an interesting not to dive into those movies, but they are interesting sort of intros to him. Uh, actually, even all three of them, right? Like you watch the escalation of those three movies. Um, even though Wedding Ring is a little bit of a departure, when you think about what you think of of Mufune, um, and you see those three movies, it makes perfect his ascent to stardom makes perfect sense. Mm. But anyway, so he does some work with Kurosawa. It's uh it's it's very good work. He hasn't quite arisen to um to international superstardom yet, which sort of begins. Later in the fifties, uh, with Rashomon, but he does a movie with Kaisuke Kinoshita called Wedding Ring, um, and
0: Moe Go- which, should, which should probably call should probably be called Engagement Ring, right? But it's like,
1: <laughs> yeah, well, they're already married. Well, <laughs> no, but but the ring—the
2: ring itself is an engagement. Ring. Uh, the yes, ring is
1: correct. an engagement ring. I'm just yes. saying, it's yeah, a yeah, little yeah. like yeah. <laughs> um, maybe, anyway. I, I'm curious if maybe that's like a lost in translation thing. I think I did find it called. It was I saw it called
0: engagement ring in certain. If you look it up,
2: it's the Japanese title of engagement ring. Oh, so, I think, so there,
1: there you go. Yeah. There, you go. There, you go. there you go. Um. The English language, just fucking it up again. Fucking it up. But um, anyway, uh, Muiko, do you want to just take us through the the uh, quick plot of this movie?
2: Yeah, sure. Well, um, the kind of story kind of starts when um, Kinio Tanaka, who is a grand star of her own, um, she's on a train and she's going to go visit her husband, who is sick. Um, she sees a very, very handsome man in white shoes, um, some white sneakers, like kind of like tumbling about on the, oh, is it a bus or is it a train?
0: I think it's a bus. I I think think it's, I think it's a bus. They They take trains. They take
2: trains back to Tokyo, right? And the man kind of like basically almost falls on her lap and they kind of realize later on that, um, she's, uh... Uh, Toshiro and the man with the white shoes, is her husband's kind of new doctor who's going to replace her, the former doctor that was kind of taking care of, um, her husband's, uh, TV. And it's the plot of the movie is basically, yes, them coming kind of gradually getting very attracted to each other um like kind of playing around with their feelings uh, a major kind of like through line of this is that um they kind of uh are wooing each other with poetry um that uh Mifune is like oh I'm not very good at writing poetry but he's actually quite good at it well his her husband he's been writing um, very very depressing kind of like nihilistic poetry on the side is a very good at it and you can kind of see a comparison of like two post-war men which is like the virile you know mifune um, doctor guy versus the very sad and depressed um tv a husband so basically <laughs> the story kind of follows their uh almost affair yeah that doesn't end up getting consummated
1: yeah
0: yeah very it's very very chaste very yeah. uh um so i let me say this just just to share my thoughts i I really enjoyed this movie i tweeted before we started recording and i said this to connor this was the last movie i watched i almost did it uh n- the opposite of chronological in preparing for this and when i realized that wedding ring engagement ring came out the same year as Rashomon, mm-hmm. I think I decided Toshiro mufune must be the greatest actor who's ever like done anything because like that's so there's so different performances he, he's so locked in obviously in either picture and he's like we've talked about he's so unbelievably charming and handsome in wedding ring but it's so different from the other four movies we're going to talk about the Kurosawa picture, right? Like, and it just feels like, um, I I just, I don't, I can't immediately think of many other performers anywhere who can do that. I just, I, I honestly was racking my brain to try to think of a comparable, person and i don't know that i could even do it like i don't know how you guys feel about that but i really enjoyed the movie it's obviously kind of yeah like we said it's just it's almost a three-hander right it's you know this 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 almost love affair and this you know this husband who's you know he's a vet of the war and he's trying to recover and and all that and i do think I don't know. I I I
1: really I loved Mufuni in this movie, Connor. What did you uh, What did you think? I yeah, same. I so I think the reason in watching these, Dan, I'm, as you mentioned, like we kind of spoke about it, but I kind of came to the same conclusion watching all these movies. Like I just was watching them, and like I said, it's hard not to develop a crush on this guy. But even just as <laughs> like as an as an admirer of of acting and movies, right? It's just like. It's really difficult not to watch. And everybody, right, anybody to ever talk about him cites his physicality. That's obviously his thing, right? But what I love about this movie, particularly at least among the ones that we watched, is his physicality's still there, but it's that it's like dormant or lingering, right? It's not, he's not dancing uh, around and he's not, you know, waddling back and forth like a buffoon a la last sam or uh, god forgive me seven samurai um i was just watching i say that because i was just watching last samurai the documentary about him before this um i was thinking the other very physical actor tom cruise um but um no no but he's not he's not waddling sort of back and forth a la seven samurai and it's it and it helps the movie so much and as you mentioned moiko like the affair i i it, it's not too much of a spoiler but the fact that they don't consummate it that's what makes the movie because you're just like there's this move you could just cut this movie with a knife you know what i mean and um and it's introduced in this it's sort of really te- teed up in this really interesting scene where as soon as they kind of have their meet cute and realize that he is her husband's doctor they're standing on train tracks and and it's this scene that's like cute and adorable, but at the same time, you, the viewer, are not are never not aware that they're standing on train tracks, and so you're just like, get off the tracks, and then they, you know, they get off the tracks and it and they move aside, and it's it's this uh, wonderful sort of metaphor to kind of tee up the whole thing. But there's a, there's another scene later, uh, and again, it's that lingering sort of dormant physicality where she sort of not so subtly urges him to like, you know, take a load off, like go for a swim. Right. <laughs> and, it's like, and, yeah. and so you have this like beautiful shirtless Tashira Mufuni getting out of the water and then she like towels him off. And it's like maybe one of the sexiest things I've ever seen. And like, that's not a sex scene. You know, you're just kind of like, oh, this is great. Like, yeah. uh, and it's that the movie's full of that. Right. And yeah, I mean, these five
2: films were basically like seeing directors thought experiments I'm like how can we make him how can we draw the plot so that Mifune takes his clothes off <laughs> 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 <laughs>
3: um
2: yeah I mean I think with um Mifune's Kurosawa collaboration I like one of my biggest beef is that I can never find him convincing in a heter- heteronormative relationship like sure. I simply just cannot there's he just is not interested in women yeah. Or he doesn't get the sense that he's interested in women mm-hmm. at all. And I find that super interesting because, I mean, then you can do the like clear reading of Mikune and all of his commercial movies. But I think in this one, you can really see, like, he just so sells his love for um, Kinyo Tanaka, who's um, he, I think, stars alongside with uh, her again um, in Mizuguchi's Life of Loharu. Um, and she's she, basically the reason why Um, the Tanaka character kind of like falls into a life of ruin and like he kind of really sells it then too. So I I had a really fun time kind of watching um, because that's uh, in the Mizuguchi, it's only like two or three scenes, but in this one, it's (laughs) an entire movie of it. So yeah, I think my favorite scene um, was when he asked um, Tanaka whether uh, he can cry on her lap because...
0: Oh my gosh it's it and this At, is and you never see that right and to, your, to your point yeah. Michael you would never see that in a uh in one of the Curacao collaborations where it's this very tender you know I guess there's elements of that in some of the p- pictures but not to that degree and and my my favorite part of, of this movie um probably is a version of the beach scene where like the female gaze being something like I love when they have the moment where they is that they grab each other's hands and it, it does that, that quick cut to her face. Mm-hmm. And she like, like kind of, it's almost like she's struck by lightning. And then the rest of the movie, it kind of is forever, you know, it's different than it becomes what the movie is. And I I I was just struck by that, where you know that everybody involved knows what they have with Mifune, like you're saying, and they really want to make the most of, you know, their celluloid and getting him... <laughs> You know, shirtless and getting him to smiling and getting him in all these different, very
1: kind of sexy moments. And, uh, even anyway, ju- yeah, even just the simplicity of like, you know, even just the simplicity of like, let's just like, let's get his hair wet, let's put a cigarette in his mouth, like, let's put a beer in his hand. Like, and what I, but what I love about where this movie lands, I think, in the context of his broader and, and, and maybe more well known filmography is that, like, it's not really capitalizing on a thing that people didn't already know, whether it's the, whether it's like the sex appeal or the tenderness. Cause like the thing about almost all of his characters, even the Kurosawa ones is they're always undercut by a level of like either emasculation or sensitivity, right. They're always undercut by like they're better angels or demons that kind of crumble that facade of like lionized manhood, right? Um and maybe not all of them, but a, a a great number of them. And so I think this is just interesting because it's like it's that on display and it's Well, it, what what did Moika, what did you say in your essay
0: about Ozu's eyes and what would you would you say you had that beautiful
2: yeah, Um Ozu's eyes and hands and <laughs> like uh is about the legs. I think Yeah, I mean, you you can actually really see... Because Kinyo Kanaka, I've always associated her as a hand director. And which is... So not hand director. I mean, she was also a director. But a hand actor where she really says a lot with kind of like a twitch of her hands. And it's fascinating that like the wedding ring, because it's on her hand, basically, you could see kind of like the close-ups of the kind of hand acting.
0: Oh, totally.
2: Totally. So the camera... Kind of, you can see like the camera focusing on the white sneakers, which of course lets us like admire his legs. And I felt like you know she's really understanding what like these two kind of bring um, different things that they bring to the table. And yeah. Um, what
0: one thing we should say, which we haven't, I don't think, explicitly said yet, is uh, Noriko. So she's been married for a few years. At a certain point in the movie she's um, with Mifune's character and she doesn't have her engagement ring on her finger. And she kind of makes up an excuse for why she doesn't have it. But that moment is kind of the indicator for the husband about what may be going on with this doctor. And then at the end of the movie, which I guess we're kind of half spoiling it, but I think it's okay. Mm-hmm. She has it back on. And that's kind of Mo- Moika, what you're saying. Like the hands are a big part of this in terms of the close-ups that are utilized. And when you see that ring back on at the end, when she's pouring him the beer, it's kind of brutal. And like you're like, that's the same scene where he asks if he can be held by her while he cries. And um, yeah, it's really effective stuff. Um, yeah, I'll go ahead, sir.
2: It's like actually just perfect catnip for the post-war Japanese woman, right? Because Mifune's allure is as a kind of like man on screen. You can just imagine him like he's. So, like, he's the kind of man who is—you can clearly see his sexual virility—but he's cu- nice enough to ask you if you can, if you can cry on your. <laughs> <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> it's just—I just think, like, and you can also see that, like, that side of him in most of his performances, where there's something. I think Connor, you totally like hit the nail on it. It's this combination of purity but also physicality and somehow it's always like entwined together Um, I think in his most complex roles and I think in this one you can see him kind of sh- vacillate between like just the two poles while also being like there's always going to be hidden reserves of passion um that will never quite break through even when like they're alone together in a hotel room in an inn that he asked her to come to. I
0: know, brutal. <laughs>
2: um, so I just, I mean, watching it now, we're like, oh, it's so chaste, but you can just imagine being, you know, like in, in 1950s woman going to the theater and being like, woo! <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, yeah, that's, no, true. It, that's the thing. Like it's, I think it's like technically chaste, but yeah, like while, even while I was watching this movie, I was like, oof, like this is like, it's like, cause you can just, you can feel, and I, and again, maybe I'm just also bringing to this what I know about Mifune as a performer, right? So to see him physically bottle all of that up, you're just mm-hmm. like, you're like waiting for it, right? And, and it's something that he brings as a physical performer, even obviously to the more like well-known roles, right? Like in Yojimbo, like you see the little chin stroke or you see the way he'll kind of wink or twitch or whatever. And you know that it's just this dude sort of working his way through a situation at least. And in those movies, right. Working his way through a situation before, you know, he's going to like kill three people. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this it's that same sort of like, as you said, that's that sort of like bubbling passion, uh, but obviously just skewed romantically, which I think is super fascinating and even diving into like watching a couple of the, uh, you know, the installments of the samurai trilogy you know, he's allowed to be romantic there, but it's in a way more, sort of in that way more asexual way that you were kind of talking about. Like he is decidedly not, like even though he's admired by several women in those movies, right? He's decidedly like not a sexual being, right? Um, and so this this sort of giving him that in this uh, in this film, I think is a, a gift to everyone.
3: Um, <laughs> now,
1: now, can I use...
0: Uh, Moeko's comment about the post-war I think was great and I'm going to use it if I can as a nice segue to our next movie because I think <laughs> because I think, Hell in the Pacific which obviously comes out in 1968 so it comes out 18 years later but this is during a time Mifune is like you said Connor he's fully now international star right he's a ready made Grand Prix mm. which was a hit by John Frankenheimer, which we talked about, you know, we, we discussed like, is that a B side? And no, of course it's not. It was a big hit. People know that movie and everything. Um, but even though it's 18 years after, you know, wedding ring and over 20 years since world war II, it does feel almost like a very American post-war version of things. And so I'll, I'll give the quick synopsis. This is also a very simple synopsis, uh, not on it's simple, you but in a very, very different way from Wedding Ring. um, Essentially, it is, you got Lee Marvin, you got Shira Mafune, that's the whole cast. It's directed by John Borman. It's basically his second movie. He had made Point Blank the year before with Lee Marvin. Um, They had a very good working relationship. Borman did not have a very good working relationship with Mafune, which um, I'll link to an interview that Borman gave about the making of Hell in the Pacific, which Connor was... Uh, good enough to find. It's a fascinating interview. Uh, they had they had a hell of a time making the picture, but I think what we have as a result is very interesting to talk about. Basically, two World War II soldiers essentially wash up on a island in the Pacific Ocean that's uninhabited at different times. So basically Lee Marvin washes up and Mafune's character, I think has already kind of made the most of his situation, right? And obviously, Marvin is an American soldier. Mifune is a Japanese soldier. And what the whole movie is essentially what starts as kind of a cat and mouse game of, you know, is one person going to kill the other? What's the motive? What have you? And then Mifune's got water. Marvin needs water. They're both unnamed soldiers, we should say, too. Like, we never know their names there's really not a lot of dialogue in this picture which i loved actually it's essentially like a silent <laughs> movie and um and and the and then i don't we i guess we don't need it it's hard because the ending uh, this movie i really enjoyed this movie i will say though i think the ending which borman talks honestly about the his sadness about the ending of this movie the ending does kind of um wrap the movie in a in a in a dark cynicism i don't know that everybody involved was really going for it's one of those weird cases where you usually hear about studios interfering to force a happy ending on a picture and this is one of those rare instances where it's the exact opposite to the point where you go like why did they think that was the right way to go but anyway um That's the movie. It's uh, you know, without giving too much away. Obviously, there will be something of a begrudging respect that happens, right? You can kind of you can kind of connect the dots with any movie like this. But um, anyway, yeah, uh, Michael, Michael, what did you?
2: strangely I think I like this one the best <laughs> I didn't expect to when it first started I was like oh shit like oh my god it's World War II like they don't speak each other's languages so there's a lot of gestural like growling going on <laughs> but I mean the ending was <laughs> the ending I mean it was like I was like it's this like is he like imitating like Maria Braun like it's just like yeah. it was funny um but I think one of the biggest things it brought for me was um it brought to the question to the floor what can we bring when he's only like he's just himself versus another person on screen and because Kurosawa always like kind of surrounds him in an ensemble cast and you're always seeing him in like ensemble cast and you kind of like see his virility amongst other men or amongst other people like I think like this one really good kind of like Like use like how can he do it alone? Like is he as attractive alone? Is he as interesting to watch alone? And I think like the answer definitively for me was yes.
0: Because even in even in Grand Prix, which comes out I think like the year before this, that's an ensemble picture, and Mafune is good in it, but it's one of those ones where it's like they're really just relying on his charm and it's not, there's not a lot there. And it's like, Oh, it's almost that movie. If I recall, it's almost worse in the like otherness of it all, where it's like, you have these international race car drivers, but the way they treat them of funny characters kind of just, you're like, okay, like he's dangerous because you don't know anything about him, which I don't like this movie. I weirdly, to your point, Borman almost does a better job of, you know, um, ringing out more truth in the way. Maybe because it's so elemental. Maybe because it's so specific. It's so about process. It's you're just you're just watching Mifune live. You know, with and you know, in a lot of ways, Lee Marvin. If you think about Kapaluu and you think about Point Blank, there are similarities with their things they had as actors right there is an intensity but then also a buffoonishness like if you, once again if you think about his performance at Capaloo that you could draw out of them that make them a really really interesting pairing um and i think that goes a long way uh so i totally agree with you
2: Connor what did you think about this movie
1: i agree with you i this like sneakily kind of i watched them actually in in chronological order Dang. and so <laughs> and so i watched uh i watched engagement ring first and i really loved it and i was like this is great this is definitely gonna be my favorite of the five and then i watched right. this one and i was like i don't know i don't know i'll say this i think i would sooner re-watch wedding ring slash engagement ring but but i but i but as far as like th- this movie just being interesting and like from a more just a filmmaking standpoint i was extremely fascinated by it and one of the things um to your point, Moeko, like, and and not because Lee Mar. I will say, and you know, we're not talking about him, but Lee Marvin's great in this movie too. It is like a, it is like a a coupling of of two really uh, wonderful, kind of just like insane performances. I got really yeah. strong, um, I got really strong sorcerer vibes from this movie. <laughs> um it kind of i don't know it's it sort of gave me that like just that like survival in the jungle like well 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 he makes deliverance right and when you think about it he makes deliverance like three years later and you kind of go oh yeah i see how that happened yeah i mean like yeah yeah yeah. and it's so i i got like and i i love sorcerer obviously anybody who's listening to this podcast has probably heard dan and i talk about it we love it um and i i loved the way he could bring out, you know, Borman, I think uses both our perception of Mifune and what he's actually good at simultaneously. Mm -hmm. And it's wonderful because that perception we're like, we're given through Lee Marvin, right? Like we, we are, we, you know, you get the particular, you know, when I say our specifically, like the Western audiences, right. And so he's that, you know, constantly sort of, dubbed as like an animalistic you know elemental just force of nature type thing and that's all lee marvin can see him as and he's allowed to kind of bring that out a little bit and he's shot and cut in that way and then obviously as the movie progresses and you get a little bit more out of him you you get Mufune, right Mm -hmm. and it's a it's a really really i think interesting use of him and it feels again like and I can't speak to this one way or the other, but the way he does it so smartly as a director that it feels it feels like it's a role that belongs to Mufune as opposed to just giving it to Mufune because he's the international superstar Japanese actor and has to be the other part of this movie. Right. Like it feels like it belongs specifically to him. And um and I that was something that that really kind of struck me. And as I thought about it, it it is just you know when you when you weigh it against that question of like how does he how does he stand outside of an ensemble, you know you can you can take Lee Marvin out of the movie and basically have like World War II Robinson Crusoe with Toshiro yeah. Mifune, and it's and it's still great. Like do you know what I mean? Like it can be a wordless you know performance and it's still great. Um, and yeah, I don't know. I again, it's a it's sort of a very Strangely, sneakily simple movie. Um, so I don't know how much there is to really say about it. Do we want to talk about the ending? What do I, you guys think, Moeko? You make the decision. Should we spoil it or not?
2: We'll All, right. All right, so we're
0: gonna we're gonna spoil <laughs> it. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I, I, one thing I want to add though uh, is I just love that shaving scene. To kind of go through the plot, they like uh, they're on a desert. They're, they're first on a teeny desert island, but then they decide to build a raft together. and they argue about how to make a raft um, the japanese way or the american way and then they decide to go with like a combination of both obviously um they like finally make it to a bigger island that used to be a kind of like it used to be a japanese war base but then it was like an american war base and then there's a scene in which um mifune kind of like in his i think and this is again what connor it's similar to what you're talking about but it's one of those moments where he it it makes it he makes that kind of like character's own he finds like um in like an abandoned hospital like tools to kind of shape his beard and he kind of starts it at the martin like yeah you should like we should um like shave our beard and have sake together and it's just like a very like it, it's it, it kind of brings out a depth that's just not like you know flat japanese other person on screen mm-hmm. and it's like a moment that's shared, I think. Um, yeah, and I really love that.
1: <laughs> no, and I, and I think that's a great segue to talk about the ending, right? Because that's yes. <laughs> that's that's towards that's towards the end of the movie, and the you know the movie weirdly, as far as the two of them are concerned, it's it, it is like it's like you're watching a relationship, right? It's like you're you're <laughs> you're watching this like it's sort of it's an opposites attract relationship where you're watching something and antagonistic, um, then become, you know, sort of a begrudging respect into sort of a mutual argument into actual like camaraderie. Right. Uh, Or at least the beginnings of that. Right. And as far as the ending is concerned, basically, they they so the way the movie ends essentially is they have this they're sort of both reminded of their flags, as it were right and they and they have this moment where they suddenly realize which side of the war they've each been on, and they kind of go back to their their sort of nationalistic mutual nationalistic bickering right mm-hmm. and then suddenly a bomb drops on them and they die and it's actually it's a it's a shot that was taken it wasn't part of the movie it wasn't shot for the movie it's a shot that was taken from oh the God, really? Yeah, it was. It's a shot that was taken from the Peter Sellers movie, The Party. And, um, and basically, essentially, the story of the ending, as it goes, is there was a scripted ending in which, um, in which the island is sort of still very much a Japanese island, and two Japanese soldiers kill Lee Marvin, and Toshiro Mufune kills them, right? Because he's super mad, right? Mm-hmm. And they, no one was really satisfied with that ending while they were shooting it. So they decided to scrap it. And then the ending, as you mentioned, Dan, Lee Marvin, and John Borman had a really great working relationship. Apparently, the ending that they shot came from like the two of them kind of workshopping it. But the ending that they shot was that they argue and then they both kind of like, saddle up with just supplies and stuff and they literally just go their separate ways on the island and that then mm-hmm. that was the end of the movie and mm-hmm. what's actually in the movie is sort of a version of that but it literally just gets cut short by a bomb dropping on them and killing them and it's this crazy <laughs> nihilistic ending and it's it's interesting because it's like what you were kind of describing Moeko. The reason I like the last act of the movie a lot is it feels, especially for a movie of its time, where you feel like it's going to kind of be like super naive about the whole thing. Like it's going to suddenly like solve racism, solve nationalism. The propensity
0: of it to become Green Book is so odd, right? Yeah. Like you can. but it, that doesn't happen. But right? then it that doesn't, doesn't
1: happen, happen and it's really, it. you know, it, it treads that territory occasionally, but it is also that kind of movie right, thematically. So, but in terms of where it lands on the subject, you, you get a sense and you can, um, you know, you can find on YouTube, you can find the original uh the original ending that they shot. And it just, the lack of naivete in that ending is actually kind of admirable, right? It's sort of this like, maybe unsatisfying, but but it doesn't attempt to like solve these broad problems that exist, you know, in the world. Right. Uh, just because of these two people. And, uh, and you, so you could, I don't know. I, I, I feel for Borman when it comes to that kind of thing, because you can tell that they, you know, he shot an ending that really probably felt super appropriate and it just got kind of, uh, butchered, but, um, and the movie, you know, the movie
0: didn't, you know, it didn't perform amazingly well. And, you know, this is it's it's a forgotten picture, obviously, in, in the sense that, you know, Borman is a director who's, I think, well remembered, probably not remembered well enough. I mean, he's he's one of those guys who, you know, he made masterpieces and everything. and You don't really think of him that way. But it is crazy, even in preparing for this podcast, when <laughs> Connor brought this movie up to me and I was like, wait, wait. There is a late 60s John Borman directed Marvin vs. (laughs) Mifune World War II set, nearly silent movie that I don't know about that's like fairly well regarded by cinephile people. And it's like just sitting there waiting to be watched. I just couldn't believe it. And then you watch it, you're like, that was good. That was a good movie. And it's just funny. It just goes to show you like some of these things just get lost. In the in the in everything. It just gets lost in the shit. And it's like, I'm happy that we were able to watch it for this. I mean, if if nothing else, it's certainly like I mean, I'll say this, and I feel like we're all gonna agree the next three we're about to get to.
2: No, I just wanna say before we get to the next three.
0: No, no, yeah.
2: I think this movie, like already from this movie, you saw the syndrome of white man loves Mi Fune so much. And so much to the point that he must be in on screen with Mifune and like wants to see how a white man would measure up against Mifune on screen. And I think this is the only one before the next three that like successfully, I think, yeah. definitely figured out like the rationale, like historical reasoning and a kind of plot structure that would make that interesting and also kind of like believable.
1: Yeah. Now, ca- Connor, I'm gonna let you, yeah, because I was the one that suggested you. The next you one, so. This is yours, yeah. This
0: one was all Connor, so we're gonna this... let Connor explain himself. <laughs> and no, I'm just kidding, I'm just kidding. No, no, no kidding.
1: but I will say, uh, no, no, no Moiko, your assessment of that because it's, yeah, it's this as we go through these next uh three, and specifically these next two, it is a kind of de evolution in that regard, um, but. The, yeah, right. the, Dan, your your sort of relationship to hell in the Pacific is the reason I recommended this next movie, because I was just perusing Criterion Channel and and saw that this movie was on there. And I was like, what is this movie? Um, and it and it popped up. And so basically the film is Red Sun from 1971. Um, uh, John Huston cited it as one of his favorite Westerns ever made, but um it, anyway it sounds like i'm about to like tear this movie apart i'm not there are things about this movie that like yeah I, from I mean, a from a, think... from a movie standpoint are entertaining and art and work uh, yeah but, i agree with that but yeah, from a yeah. mufuni standpoint maybe do not work as well um but yeah. basically it's sort of like i mentioned before it's sort of this this uh, internet this collection of international superstars in a western right and um it's charles bronson it's Toshiro Mifune and it's Alain Delon and it's basically Bronson and Delon are working together to rob this train that Mifune is on and he is a samurai who's working for this emissary who's basically going to give this gift to the president on behalf of the emperor and Alain Delon plays Gauche who is uh, who is this, the ringleader of this heist, and in essentially killing Mifune's counterpart and taking the sword, gets away, leaves Bronson for dead as well, and suddenly their you know, goals are aligned, right? Mifune is tasked with seven days to uh, get the sword back before he essentially has to disembowel himself and Bronson basically decides to go with him, sort of begrudgingly, because he knows how to get to Gauche, But he basically just wants his cut of the money, right? And that's basically it. And then as we well, the whole yeah, and the whole conflict between Bronson and
0: Mafune is like Bronson's like, "Don't kill him because right, I right, get right. my money, right. dude." And and Mafune's like. I'm gonna kill him the minute I see him. Right, because he killed, you know, like he killed, killed whole, my friend. Yeah, yeah. That's the whole bit. That's like yeah. a bit. I mean, that's it's like a it's comedy a, bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For half and the it's, movie, it's like, no, I'm gonna kill him. No, it, you won't. And, it's, like, and
1: there is the you know, there's the obvious sort of like all all of the things that you think are bits in this movie are bits. Yeah. Right. All of all of the the othering and the uh, and the like just you eat like you eat raw fish like that type of shit like it's just oh, like yeah it, it all comes well, up well, and whatever well
0: and even and and the reason obviously shanghai noon it's it's chinese right and it's obviously full comedy and it's a different thing but the reason it's hard not to think about that movie is because it feels like the natural evolution of what this movie's kind of hinting at where it's sure. like if you are going to make a movie like this you kind of have to not that shanghai noon some like masterpiece but but those movies the reason they work and they age fine and i think they're actually pretty clever is because jackie chan is so much smarter than Owen wilson and sure. the joke is any othering is like ignorant and the movie knows and- it is and he and, and jackie chan uses it For his benefit, right? And so this movie, it's like 40% of that, right? Like there's an idea, like Terrence Young and whoever else is involved, like there's an idea of that. But of course, they're never going to even touch the, you know, where you need to get to make it. Actionable, right? But there's a thought, yeah. But it's just not, you know, the same thing.
1: And the most, and the most you get out of it is the scene that. So I've now watched this movie twice because I watched it, and then I said, <laughs> and then I said to Dan, "Oh, we have to do this on the podcast." And then I watched it again to refresh myself. And the scene that crushed me both times, admittedly, is just Toshir Mafuni like manhandling Charles Bronson for like for like sixty seconds, And Brons- and
0: I. <laughs> What, hang on, what did I say to you? Clint Eastwood was offered this role yeah. and ter- and said no. And I and I said, I guarantee you the yeah. reason he said no is because he read the script and he's like, no, 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 wait, well, mufuni's going to beat me up? No way I'm taking this role, right? Like, yeah, I feel like Clint Eastwood would have never, you know.
3: Hell, you think I'm going to hit a man who can't even make a fist? <laughs> you think you could do that again? Or most certainly looks to me like you're getting tired
1: if it was eastwood it would just feel even more resonant because you'd have sanduro throwing around the man with no name which would have been been right it would have been like, kind of great it would it would have been a nice little thing but and that's basically like that literally that feeling of like oh that's sort of nice to see that's like the prime level that this movie works on right like Alain Delon is a is a good villain, you know, and, and everybody, right, everybody on screen is like handsome and like it's so it's again on an aesthetic level, this movie works. There is some and it even if you want to just coast with the sort of opposite sides of the world coming together narrative that's used to like bolster up the comedy, it's even it it, it can go along even on those regards, but then it gets in its in its final <laughs> moments. Basically, everybody comes together because because the Comanche come into play (laughs) and it is like some hard just it's like really, really tough to swallow. Like they're just, you know, this they're the whole narrative of, oh, I have to get revenge for my dead friend or, oh, I need to recover this treasure is just put on hold because, like, no one's as bad or terrifying as the the savages, the Comanche, right? And it's this, like, really just, like... It's it's the reason why I think about, like, you know, you think about the stuff that... Uh, did I say John Houston before? Yeah, you did. Oh, I, and meant, I, knew, I, knew I you meant, meant Ford. I meant Ford. I knew you meant Sorry, John Ford. I'm, a, I'm, an, I'm an idiot. I'm an idiot. Because <laughs> <laughs> I,
0: like, I was like, John Huston didn't a, make I'm, any great an Westerns. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: <laughs> I'm an idiot. I'm an idiot. Sorry. I'm just realizing that. Yeah. Um, No, but it's the reason, like, the third act of this movie is the reason I can feel, like, John Ford is like, I fucking love this movie, right? And, like, and, um, and so, it's like an
0: old-fashioned western, yeah, yeah, the way they should
1: be. And so, and so that's the part of it that's, like, for me, I was just, like, ooh, yikes. Um but you have Ursula Andress popping up, and uh, and she gets to do nothing but be and look like Ursula Andress, which I suppose <laughs> is expected for the time. But um, but yeah, that's that's where it's on. Moeko, what mm-hmm. are your thoughts? What are your thoughts on this movie?
2: I mean, this uh, I I have multiple categories of like white boy loves Japan movies in my head, and this <laughs> um, this definitely belongs in the uh, way of the sword um movie category where i think there's like an obsession with gun versus sword and you really they were just like we really want to have this element (laughs) (laughs) Um, one of the things i actually found super interesting was kind of how like elaine delon and mifune kind of work together like mifune as opposed to i feel for me like delon oh like in his most iconic roles plays like, like I'm I'm thinking especially in like Visconti's leopard, he like plays roles that like he, his handsomeness always signifies like future like orientation. He's going to be handsome. He's so very, like, and Mifune, like, in this movie, I think, like, is, like, all about the past or, like, the ancient past or, like, some kind of hidden past and, like, pitting those two, like, very different kinds of handsomeness, I guess, like, together and seeing how it works with, like, Charles Bronson like, (laughs) wobbling himself in between. I think, (laughs) weirdly, like, like, I I kind of get the the conceit of the movie. Um, But... It, it's such a shame because I think Mifune like is feels still so underutilized. Like even though he's the bodyguard to the ambassador, it's ironic because he was basically the ambassador to the West for Japan. Like mm. when he's supposed to do that literally, I just think he never really shines like as well, like just as well as he does in any of his other movies. And you kind of like see that, like you you kind of see Mifune. Revolting against like the pretty clothes that are put on him almost throughout the movie because you could kind of see like the production budget and like you're like where did that helmet come from? <laughs> and we should
0: we should say an interesting thing about Terrence Young is um so I think it's yeah eleven years after this movie he works with Mafune again in one of the biggest. Hollywood debacles, actually 10 years. I'm sorry. It's 1981, technically. Um, Terrence Young directed Incheon, which is the like famously, it lost all the money that's ever been gained by anybody. It's like this unbelievable war epic about the Battle of Incheon that, you know, um, know, it's the Korean War. Terrence Young directed. Lawrence Olivier plays uh, General MacArthur. Jackie Bissett's in it, Ben Gazzara, Richard Roundtree, Shira Mufune. It's like all these, you know, all these great actors, a budget of 46 million. It made five. Oh, no. It just was this huge debacle. We have an interview actually with uh, mufune that's more that take that takes place around the same time as our fourth movie, which we'll get to. But he re- he mentions the movie during that interview while he's also talking about the challenge, the Frankenheimer picture, and it's just so interesting to think about. Terrence Young, who you know, Terrence Young made the early Bond movies. He's a very accomplished director. Yeah, it's funny. It's like the this this Red Sun, which I think Red Sun did okay actually as a as a movie. I think people saw it. I think it did all right, but. It's just interesting that that's the two movies he made with Mifune are like this kind of, you know, movie is not aged well. It's a debacle in its own right. And then an actual like studio ending, you know, people always blame Heaven's Gate for the end of New Hollywood. But people forget about Inchon. like that was equally, equally a part of it. Right. As just kind of the end of the 70s and the beginning of the 80s. Um, so I just it's hard not to mention that when you talk about Terence Chung and Mifune. But yeah, I mean. I don't know what more to say about Red Sun. It's hard. It's like there the ending
2: the way there's a way out. I'm like is it is it is it cleverer than I'm giving it? Like room to be uh, because there's that, there were those scenes where like Charles Bronson was like do you know how to ride a horse? Like like it's 1860 apparently in this universe, Japan has never had horses before. <laughs> I'm like, uh, and Mifune's face when Charles Bronson asked this question because like you see Mifune being such an accomplished horseman in all of his other movies. I'm like, is this actually like a cheeky question to make audiences laugh? Or is it just mm. like completely, like, you know, uh, it's, I don't know. That's <laughs> yeah. an interesting, yeah,
1: it, yeah It's I I think, yeah, that's the stuff I was wrestling with, too, because it's he feels so to your point, Moiko, he feels so boxed in in this movie and not in the good way, like not in the engagement ring way where it's like you're waiting for that. Mo- it's just he feels kind of he feels kind of bored and it wh- while it does. <laughs> well, it does read. And even if you read about it, if you read about the production, it seems like kind of, you know, on the screen, it seems like what it apparently was, was which was everybody just kind of wanted to work together. Like everybody just kind of wanted to like go to Spain, hang out. Like Mufuni would like cook for people while they, and they would all hang out and get drunk. And like a would go off and then like come back to shoot. And, you know, but like they all basically got along. like, it's, it's like one of those things that you're kind of like, yeah, I guess. And whatever, if that's a reason for these specific people to make a movie, I can't, you know, I could see how they could enjoy it. All- one another's company so whatever more power to you but he does sort of feel bored and it's tough to reconcile that because it's yeah there are moments where you're like oh in the moment to like a 1971 audience is this all are all of these bits just crushing it right like and is it and is it (laughs) and is it deliberate and like and like look like Terrence Young's not a terrible director, right? He's he he knows what he's doing. So it's like you part, to your point, part of me wants to give the movie the benefit of the doubt and be like, no, yeah, it's like sort of satirical and kind of, it's meant to be funny and and whatever, and um or meant to be funny in a way that you don't necessarily think it outwardly is, right? And um and yeah, and that I think is the big I th- the Can big- we can we talk about how this movie and the next movie are just both
0: about how people need to get swords back? Oh my god! <laughs> oh, they're this just movie, both.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: This movie and the challenge are just both like you know what? <laughs> those
1: swords gotta yeah. get those swords. Yeah. It's like so. It's, oh my god! The challenge. Well, I guess it now's a good a time. Do we want to? <laughs> do we want to say anything else about Red Sun before we wrap it up? I think we're
2: good.
1: Yeah, <laughs> I think so. You can. It's rentable. If you want to watch it, you can rent it again. It's. I would say it's. It's, it's not.
0: It's on Criterion,
1: right? It's on Criterion. Not anymore. I don't think. I tried. Oh, it's not. Okay. Yeah, I tried okay. to find it, and it and it wasn't. But, um, but if you want to watch I would it, say, I
2: would say there is a scene in which McName strips down, and um, it was again one of those. I was like, maybe we should have a drinking game, and whenever any director <laughs> <Yes. laughs> finds an excuse and young found an
1: excuse so if you want to
0: watch that yeah w- w- <laughs> worth it Again, and he's and he's a little older and he still looks great it's not yeah. no.
1: Sh- I
2: was like, mm,
1: okay. even in even in but you know by the time the challenge comes around he's not allowed to show it but dan like you mentioned there's a tv interview that Muiko. i think you also mentioned in mm-hmm. your he, he wasn't a big interview guy so it's there's not like a ton of stuff I feel like you can find on him. Uh but yep. but if you I mean if you straight up we'll we'll link to it uh in the article, but even if you were to straight up Google Toshiro Mifune interview, it'd probably pop right up. Um but even in that, he's looks handsome. You're like, oh yeah, you're like Well he's, well one thing, yeah, and one thing to
0: mention that's just interesting um is so him and Kurosawa make 16 movies. Uh Redbeard comes out in 65, I think, and their trajectory of their careers are vastly different, right? So like literally from that moment on, basically until the 80s, Kura, uh, Kurosawa has a really nascent uh, really uh, not nascent, a really low period, right? His decade his basically decade and a half from 65 to 80 is is bad. It's tough. He makes a couple of flops, he starts a production company with some friends. It doesn't go well. Japan kind of goes, thank you, but no, like you've done your best. He kind of bashes a little bit Mufune in the press, right? He's a little, you know, it's there's a little bit of animosity there. Meanwhile, Mufune, even if maybe the product is a little red sun-ish and stuff, and maybe not as great, is an international star. He becomes a businessman. He's opening restaurants. Like he's making money. He's People know who he is. And it's a real thing. Like the last... You know, and he recovers right. Like Kurosawa has the stuff at the end, right? Ran, ran, ran and and uh, and uh, dream, you know, dreams, and he kind of, you know, he gets the honorary Oscar, and there's like he's a living legend, and people give him the respect he's due and everything. But it is a crazy thing to think about, like that. And I believe they did reconcile before the you know it was all over, as I understand it. But but it's just an interesting thing to think about how like Mufune kind of goes on to become this. You know, he's offered obi-wan and darth vader from george lucas and he turns it down because he thinks it's gonna look cheap and da 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 -da, and all these kind of great stories and um and meanwhile you know curse really has to get back on his feet which he does uh you know god bless but um anyway just as some kind of you know uh settings in this in between time because the challenge is 1982 uh and i guess connor do you want to tell us about this movie i think it was shot well before 1982
1: no yeah so the challenge this was another one that like in in sort of we were looking through mifune's 80s output and i i came across this one and again not again not unlike red sun it stood out just because of the the pedigree and you're just like what is this movie um (laughs) and i sort of wish i never found it but <laughs> but, but but here we are such a violent movie very it? violent red sun is violent too and i guess both of them are violent in the way that you would expect as you get into i don't know the challenge is like really yeah, I mean, yeah, violent. the cha- the challenge gets crazy violent but basically uh as dan mentioned this whole movie is just about getting a sword back and it essentially it follows Scott Glenn, who is at the you know the beginnings of of his career, right? And this is his first starring role. Yes, this, this is his first yeah, star yeah. role. And he um, he basically is sort of a down and out fighter who gets recruited by um, by a Japanese man to smuggle a sword back to Japan. And they reason, the reason they need him to do it is because he's an outsider. Basically, no one would expect him to have this sword, right? So, they, they decide to pay him a bunch of money to do it. So, they pay him, you know, they offer him $2,000 to do this. They sort of tee it up as like, oh, it's a, it's a few days work, whatever, blah, 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 blah. And obviously, because movies are movies, it's way more complicated than that. So, <laughs> Scott Glenn agrees to do it and finds himself embroiled in this generation-spanning family feud where this sword is one half of a set of swords called the Equals. And Toshiro Mifune plays a man named Yoshida, who we are sort of... Introduced to briefly in the beginning of the movie, uh, the movie opens in 1945, I believe, um, before we jump ahead to uh, to what at the time of the movie is present day, we see that the sword is being presented to someone and then that someone gets sliced in the back and that person is in fact the man who recruits Scott Glenn in the beginning of the movie and it is Tashir Mufuni's son. Basically, this sword has been the object of affection for uh, Mathuni's brother named Hideo, who has the other sword, wants this sword, right, and, and needs to get it back. And that's kind of it. Like, it's really the rest of the movie is Glenn caught in between these two factions as they both try and kind of get him to do their bidding. Ultimately, he sides with mufuni as he decides to sort of train underneath them. And then that's when the movie gets, that it, uh, it's most sort of uh, unpalatable. It's a, uh, as you said, Moeko, it becomes a white boy loves Japanese stuff movie very, very, very quickly. And that's kind of it. Glenn, by all accounts, kind of hates the movie. So does Mifune. Um yeah. I couldn't find anything from Frankenheimer on it, but basically by both Scott Glenn and Toshiro Mifune's accounts of the movie, they sort of signed on to it. It was a little bit more of like a character piece, um, and essentially it slowly got just turned into a uh, a martial arts movie. It's I mean, a-
0: Frank, this is Frankenheimer. This is, I think, he's getting into his like workman stage sure. of his career yeah you know, this yeah. you know
1: and it, and it's and i i thought i thought and again i think i'm just confusing it with a couple other moments in frankenheimer's career but i thought that this had one of those things where like it was going to be directed by somewhere else mifuni in that same tv interview with it we referenced he mentions that frankenheimer was not his choice so you have to wonder if like someone else had their hands on it and then Frankenheimer came in and was the one that Frankenheimered it. You know, you, you can see like this happened this happened with Burt Lancaster and the train, right? Yeah. It was supposed to be more of just like a character picture. Lancaster straight up brought in Frankenheimer to make it an action picture.
0: Yeah, I mean Frankenheimer's whole bit was he was a very regimented director and he was a very he was like an asshole guy, which I I don't even mean in you know, I mean I think he would say that, you know, and he was like very like not an actor's director, right? Very much kind of like, let's get the shot, let's move on, beep, boop, pop, right? And you see that in the challenge, right? Yeah. It's, It's a very, the stuff that works are the set piece moments where it's, it, it could be scott glenn it could be glenn scott it could be <laughs> anybody it's Shiro, it doesn't have to be dashiro mafune right it's like it could be anybody and those sequences would work because it's all very like sequence first filmmaking which is fine but i think obviously where it suffers is every other part of the movie where you just kind of go like what why do i care about these characters like what is the motivation because you have, you know, the Scott Glenn character. And it's funny because it's simple, like it's funny. You Connor mistakenly said The Last Samurai earlier. For all of the uh white saviorness of The Last Samurai, The Last Samurai is a better, more built-out version of this movie, right? It's like the Tom Cruise character in that movie basically is an enemy of the samurai and then falls in love with the Bushido and their ways and blah blah blah, And then becomes, and it's like that, except they spend the time to at least kind of tell you something about the code of Bushido and kind of everything else. And so anyway, this is just, I don't even know. This is just, yeah,
2: I, I don't know. Kudos because I think every decade we, at least for these three films, we see kind of like a, like a progression like we see shades of white boy in love japan like, <laughs> I think it's not like the same thing each time and i think this one is about like i mean i have a really hard time with this one i think i must have like stopped and restarted at least like eight times <laughs> you know I just was like i can't i can't anymore but i think this one is like firmly belongs in the category of like okay if when Red Sun, like we want to bring the Japanese person to, into a Western world, like this one is like white boy goes to Japan and learns from a master. Like, I mean, in a way like Tokyo Drift is a version of this, Mm. right? Like, Oh yeah. Kinds of like, it's definitely a cat, like a genre of film of you see this, it's, it, and like there are clever ways of doing it and there are not so clever ways of doing it and this one might have, be solidly in the latter, but I think it's like, it, at least for me, it was fascinating to see Mifune kind of <laughs> go through the motions of um, a certain kind of character that I think is actually recognizable like, I don't think he brings like, he could have been easily replaceable by another, like uh samurai wielding like person but i the one scene that i actually really did like was one that didn't have Mifune in it and it was in the scene where they like Scotland and the japanese like brother character are fighting in the office building and they start with fighting with swords but then they decide <laughs> to spark fight with like office supplies and then they like staple each other's foreheads and stuff i thought that was funny i thought yeah. that was like, the one moment of like actually it's not the way of the sword and it's not the way of the gun like when you're fighting you're gonna use whatever the heck is around you and try to gain the advantage and i thought like that was the one moment of grace in the film where that, I did.
0: you're right the, yeah there's something about that they don't dig into it all but if they did it would be more interesting about this idea and you even mention it in your mufune essay the idea of he was so in he was so uh, alluring and and everything but then later on his career you almost could feel time slipping away from him and him becoming like this old this representation of something old weirdly and this movie to your point is kind of a great distillation of that because you watch it and you go like this is below Mufune. He doesn't even need to be in this. But of course, I'm sure he got paid well. And in that IMDB trivia that Connor mentioned earlier, he, he like Scott Glenn was like not happy with the direction of the movie. And this is, you know, IMDB trivia. So take it with a grain of salt. But, but apparently Mufune is like, look, this isn't gonna go well. We're not gonna like the movie. But look, you're in Tokyo and you can have me as a tour guide and we can eat and we can enjoy. And it's like that part of it I love. Where like Mufuni's older and he's like, look, man. I got my restaurants. I got my money. I, I'm having a good life. I've made, you know, I've made my masterpieces. Like, you know, nothing's gonna, you know, nothing's gonna besmirch anything at this point. Let's just let's just enjoy ourselves. And to your point, his performance is very much just like, what's the line, John? What's the line? You know? Yeah, Um, But but yes, the idea of the old ways are dead. What are the new ways? you know what does that mean for japan as a cultural what have you mm-hmm. there is something there in maybe just that one stapling of i mean the i will say this they filmed that fight scene in what was that very new building at the time in real life in in um i don't even think it's in to- i don't is it in tokyo i think it's actually it was south of tokyo but point is that building as its own representation of like modern Japan is interesting as a set piece, but they don't do anything with it. But like, if you make that more central to the story, it can be
1: something more provocative. Well, for sure. And I don't, I don't want to sound obvious here, but like, it's more interesting probably if it's directed by a Japanese director. Yeah. Right. Like, I like, do you know what I mean? Like where, if it's coming from a Japanese filmmaker, who's like, let me reconcile these two things. Right. Like, and, and, and again, like, and to your point, Moeko, that specific scene it it gets inventive right like there's the moment in that same sequence where he's like jabbing at him with the sword and he's behind the glass shelves and it's like and but that and to frankenheimer's credit is frankenheimer right like it's like that's why you hire john frankenheimer it's an inventive little set piece there are a couple others throughout the movie that are like kind of interesting but the if you were to watch any I I wouldn't even say watch this movie. Like, if you want to see what we're talking about, you can probably just YouTube that scene from this movie, uh, and and it'll and it'll be worth it, I suppose. But, um,
2: well, now I'm imagining like Takeshi Kitano directing like a white boy. (laughs) to Japan movie, because that would be pretty funny. I I do think. I mean, yeah, like it's, it's. it's just, you. It, it's a movie that's like you throw every conceivable stereotype you can get of, you know, like there's the Japanese girl that the boy falls in love with, right? You get like a taste of Samuel Fuller in there. And then it's like all these other kinds of tropes. And I, I do think like I wish... I wish another director or some like there had been another combination of it just because I could see it like going really camp and it actually working. Like if it really it, it's almost as though like I wanted it to like press into its tropiness harder so that it seems aware of its own right. like um <laughs>
1: which, which is sort of a little bit more like Red Sun, as we kind of talked before, like feels like it might be doing that. A, yeah. Like in, a little bit more intentionally, right? And it feels yeah. like here, Frankenheimer does not give a shit. Like, it's window dressing, yeah. right? It's all well, and, window dressing. Yeah. And, and, and eight years before this,
0: Sidney um, Pollock made a movie written by Paul Schrader called The Yakuza, which even though it didn't do well, um, Robert Mitchum is the star. And it's kind of like a noir where it's like he goes, you, you know, re- a retired uh private eye has to go across the world for an old friend and then there's a murder right blah 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 blah. that movie even though it didn't do well initially i think its reputation was pretty solid especially because then schrader wrote taxi driver and sydney Pollock made his movies so you can kind of sense the hollywood studio element of like all right the yakuza okay we'll do another one right like you can see how it got The the, how that all happened, but to your point, Moico, it's like it's it's one of those classic things where you just go like, oh yeah, they just had a, a nugget of an interesting idea and they just chose to take the least interesting path and the most reductive path to get there, and then they just kind of put it out a year later, and nobody really, nobody really cared. I mean, this movie didn't really do any business. It kind of came and went. Scott Glenn's, I mean, it's an interesting note. Scott Glenn, I tweeted this. The, the most interesting thing for me about this movie was like remembering that for a minute, Scott Glenn was like a leading man in Hollywood, which is so strange.
1: Like, you know, like right, isn't, ever... isn't he, isn't a, a movie that also kind of famously did not do well. Isn't he in the keep at the same, yeah, at like so, the so, same time? So,
0: yeah. So he was a Marine yeah. and he, and he comes out of that and he like, he sparks in a couple things. The biggest one probably being urban cowboy is like the kind of right. The kind of, Villain character in that big hit movie, and then he's in the Keep, which is like the Michael Mann kind of forgotten movie. Then he's in this, which is kind of a forgotten Frankenheimer picture, and then he does like the right stuff, which is a masterpiece, you know, ensemble picture. He's but he's you know he's very central to that. And then um he makes people nobody knows this. He made the original Man on Fire. He plays Creasy in man on fire in the late eighties, nobody saw it. It barely came out. They remake it 17 years later from Denzel, Tony Scott, people love it. And it's like, he just had a little bit of a shot and he kind of never really got it, you know, it, it never hit. And this is the beginning of it, which I just find so fascinating. When you think about Scott Glenn, it's so weird.
2: It's, I mean, it's this movie kind of highlighted a lot of, like it's, it seemed to be one of those movies where like, it like, potential opportunities for further examination kind of like reveal themselves and yet are passed by so quickly like for me i was like fascinated by the japanese people who were speaking fluent english i was like who are these people like you know like Bong joon ho has all these like translator characters in all of his movies who are very fluent and but the fact that they're fluent in english means something about imperialism it said something about like their position in the world and there was just no examination of that like it's interesting that there are people who are speaking fluent english in that movie in this particular movie like what like because like being a japanese american is very different from growing up in japanese in the island and there's like a lot of like intercommunication that goes along with the japanese americans and japanese people in tokyo with the way like there are just so many shades that could have possibly like been mined i think (laughs) that like had it been a director who kind of understood that there are these kinds of different shades, especially in a moment like the 80s, where there were a lot of like, you know, like political tension going on.
0: No, that's I, I totally I hear what you're saying. I mean, I, let me quickly just so the conference center I was referencing earlier is the Kyoto International Conference Center. So that is where they shot the finale, um which is just funny to think about. Um Still stands, obviously. Um Connor, what are, what's your
1: final uh, thoughts on the challenge? Yeah. I don't know. Like I, again, outside of like the outside of kind of the climax of the movie, I don't, I mean, I definitely obviously wouldn't recommend it. And I, and I feel bad when we like just dog on a movie, you know what I mean? Like it's like, but it really, I know the movies, some, uh, we say this every once in a while, but like some of these movies are B-sides for a reason. Right. And like, and it just, you know, this one.
0: Now, what about this? It was re-edited for TV with the title Sword of the Ninja. So maybe that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Weirdly, do you know what's funny? Sword that... of the Ninja. He, like, hang on, come on. Hang on, hang come on, on. Hang on, hang on. I will say that title, I dare say at least feels more appropriate to like the attitude of the movie in yeah, terms like, of like that title does not give a shit about anything. So, like, so <laughs> that's at the, true. So at the very least you're like, yeah, okay.
2: And, yeah.
1: And like, and, and again, p- on a purely like movie going standpoint, like, the only part of this movie that worked for me was sort of when it just went full Frankenheimer action movie where you're at least like, just like, okay, like, let me just, I'm just watching this happen, right? Like, um, but on any other level, it really, it does not, uh it does not function well. Um It's a bum, I don't know. Yeah, it's a bummer because you just, you... And again, I feel like it's obviously a tendency with a lot, a ton of Holly, you know, Hollywood or international icons where you, you just see when they get into that, that elder statesman role where they're just taking, you know, they're taking the role that is the old wise version of the role that they're famous for kind of thing. Yeah. And it, you know. It's you know I I would say what his career trajectory seems on par with where you see most other people of his stature wind up in that regard like but it doesn't mean it's any less sad you know is, is especially there, to watch these in chronological order uh, was a real bummer
0: <laughs> is 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 there um I'm uh, I, as I said of the three of us I'm the least familiar in overall with Mafune's output is there a late period. Mifune performance that is like a, a great performance that either of you can just think that of. I don't like mean a, return, I don't, a good return mean, to
1: form type thing. I don't mean to,
0: I don't mean to put it, either of you guys on the spot, but I'm just thinking to your point, Like, is there a like, you know, I don't, you know, I'm trying now I'm trying to think of an even example from another actor, but you know, a good final performance because you're right, Connor, like these movies we're talking about, it is kind of he's, you know, just getting the checks at the end, which is totally fine. You know, obviously, hey, you know, all good. But I'm looking at his output now, and it's hard. There's not
1: that much, to be honest. He doesn't make. It's a. I mean, it's a slew of TV movies. It's well, and you you got to remember, in terms of his career, and it was a success. But like, you you obviously can't talk about late period Mifune without talking about Shogun, right? Which, which solidifies him in America. Oh, yeah, he, he's yeah, Shogun, huge. right, he's, right, right. He's huge on TV, right. And that was something just, so
0: when I was referencing Kurosawa saying maybe not nice things, he, you know, in the press, kind of shit on Shogun, which, you know, people were like, took it as kind and, of... A, and look,
1: yeah. maybe not maybe not unjustly again. In oh, regard, no, sure. And in regard to it is, you know, it is Mafuni being like, oh, yeah, you know me as a samurai, right? Like, I'll just I'm going to just slide into that and take my check. Thank you very much.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but, yeah, so he, you know, he gets into that mode and that the challenge is right in line with that. Right. He's basically asleep at the wheel. Um, and then it moves us kind of, you know, again, to your point, Dan, he's owning restaurants, he's doing his thing. He's kind of, I think, just living out his life. And the reason I picked Shadow of the Wolf when I saw it is cause I frankly was like, let me just work backwards and like what strikes me as something that's like insane. And this movie certainly mm-hmm. did. But Dan, do you want to talk us through uh, through Shadow of the Wolf? Oh
0: God. Yeah. We Let's could be quick. It.
1: We could be quick about it. <laughs> so there's so
0: there are wolves and there are shadows. No. Um So, yeah, Shadow of the Wolf is a movie about Inuits. Uh, I do not believe there is an Inuit in the picture. It came out in the year of our Lord, 1992. It's directed by Jacques Dorfman, who was primarily a producer. Fun, important fact, one of the movies he produced was a movie called Quest for Fire, which if you know quest for fire it was a pretty successful movie in the early 80s where in in wherein anthony burgess basically from research developed a language and it's essentially about i I guess it's neanderthals who are they find fire and there it's it's like in this period of time, this quest for fire, they have fire and their tribe is very, uh, powerful because they have fire and no one has really in the tribe has learned how to make fire, but they essentially found fire and they learned how to keep fire. And during this beginning fight, they lose the fire and they send two men in their tribe one of whom is young Ron Perlman, to go literally go find fire. That's what the movie's about. And it's actually a pretty interesting movie. It's There's not a lot of dialogue. Any of the dialogue is basically this created language that Anthony Burgess, who you know from Clockwork Orange, he basically wrote. Heavily criticized now by historians, of course, but interesting in its own right. Anyway, Jacques Dorfman produced that movie. And Shadow of the Wolf is kind of in that vein where it's essentially set in the 1930s, It was also known as
1: Agaguk, 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 Agaguk. which is the main character's name.
0: Yeah, and it's it is based, I believe, on a novel of that same name by Yves Thoreau Um, and Lou Diamond Phillips. We all know him, we all love him. Plays the title, uh, you know, the title character, the lead character. He's a young Inuit. And his father, Krumak, is played by Tishira Mufune, who is like the tribe leader of this Inuit group. And early on, there are these white traders who are not not very nice. And Aguguk is a very proud young man. He gets into an altercation with one of them. The white trader is murdered by Aguguk. And what results is... Lou Diamond Phillips takes this young woman played by Jennifer Tilly, mm-hmm. which is it's California born Jennifer Tilly. Um, they basically leave his tribe. He's kind of banished by Tashira um, and they go north. And then, of course, what happens? More white men come to investigate the murder of this other white man. One of them is Henderson, played by Donald Sutherland, who is very much here for just the minimal amount of time. And, yeah, and no no hate on Donald Sutherland. I'm sure to be very honest about that. And essentially, Sutherland and some others are trying to find out who killed this white trader. And Mufune is not speaking up about it while this is going on. It's essentially a coming-of-age story with Lou Diamond Phillips and Jennifer Tilly. She becomes pregnant, and it's essentially a story about this young man becoming, you know, can he become the man his tribe needs him to be, and that's the movie. I mean, it is um, – I, I don't know. It's weird. Movies like this are strange because it is interesting. Um, the casting, of course, is a problem, but if you kind of look past it and, you, you know – as Mueko said earlier, Mufune is commanding the screen. That was one of his last roles, like Connor mentioned. The facial hair is doing a lot. Um, <laughs> but it is it is a movie. Like, it's certainly more interesting than the challenge. You know yes, what I mean? like, I, you, I, like you, I
1: agree. I agree. Like, you
0: you kind of go... What did you say, Mojiko? I
2: totally agree. That is far more interesting than the
0: challenge. Yeah, you kind of go like... Okay, I mean, this is like you know what it reminds me of. There's a movie from the early two thousands that nobody has seen. It's a movie called The Snow Walker, with Barry Pepper, and he plays this mailman who's flying. He flies to these remote areas to deliver mail, and his plane crashes. And it crashed. It crashed. It crashes. He finds like a Inuit woman who's dying. She's like in trouble and he's trying to rescue her and then they crash and he literally has to carry his like drag her across the tundra. And it's a similar, like it's an interesting movie. It's like a movie about something I don't know anything about. And it's kind of interesting. And you're like, okay, like the subject matters shadow wolf. It's a similar thing where you go like, yeah, if, if, if you cast it better and it's subtitled, you know what I mean? And you kind of put the money in different places other than, the cast in the international production like remake this movie now right and I, I think it's like an interesting Sundance movie or something like that I don't know but as a whole it's it, le- it leaves a bunch to be desired but I, you know in terms of Mafune particularly um he's there's a couple of funny scenes with him and Donald Sutherland I think that was kind of probably my highlight like where he's like trying, he's like nagging Donald Sutherland because he wants to annoy Donald Sutherland to the point that he'll leave and like not worry about his son being a murderer. That was, I guess, the highlight of the picture for me. Michael, what did you, what did you think?
2: Um, I mean, I don't want to ruin the film or spoil it, <laughs> but my favorite <laughs> scene was when McFinney jumps out of a plane, nokes it out of the plane, and then turns into a hawk. Like, I mean, yes. Honestly, that just was my highlight. I like feared, and I was like, yes, this is like the perfect ending it's- to all these films. Um, I think, like, what I found interesting was again, we find like Mitsume in a movie that's basically about like an other civilization like being opened up to the like white men. And I just think that like, this seemed to be like a theme of like tension. Like, I mean, like, I was like, maybe I find this film more powerful because I'm not an Inuit person and I don't quite understand like the ways in which the Inuits have been stereotyped in particular ways. And like, were this like about, you know, like Perry coming into with his black ship into Japan and like it opening up, perhaps I would have had a different reaction to this movie. But there was something about like, I don't know, like, the rhythms of, like, building an igloo or, like, the rhythms of, like, everyday life that, like, kind of, like, snuck in, I think, in this movie that I thought, like, I was having, I was, like, having a good time watching. Like, I agree with you that it seemed to be in the kind of, like, were it remade and, like, I think the murder scenes, like, kind of taken out. Like something about the like it's focused on daily rhythms and like how a knife sounds when it's being sharpened, like all those kinds of like attentions seem to be something that like the movie was like it actually cared about, um, and it wasn't quite about like representing another culture, but like there seemed to be like a different level at play in this movie. I think um, I don't know. What do you think?
1: I I, I kind of feel the same way. I. I didn't like love this movie, but again, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it was fascinating to me and like, and it, it, again, more like from a filmmaking standpoint, because I'd be curious to, I'd be curious to know. And I said this to you, Dan, when we were talking about it the other day that like, if, I mean, it's based on a book, right? So like, I bet it reads better. Then it plays on screen. Like, and I'm not, I have no idea if like if the murder is part of the book, but I feel like it's also it's it's better if the murder's not there, right? Like, find and find another reason for the Mifune character to exile Lou Diamond Phillips, right? And like, and just find another reason for him to be away. And then all you have, and I say that it's not a bad thing, but like, and then what you have is a movie. About someone who because you know a young angry person who because of the way that they feel is sort of forced into this situation where they have to grow up and they're literally combating against anybody and everybody who can help them until they are physically because what we haven't said is like near the end of the movie. Lou Diamond Phillips, he keeps having these dreams about this white wolf, right? And it appears to be this very medical, metaphorical thing, and it very much is, obviously, given the imperialistic kind of uh, colonial aspects of the movie. And but, th- quite literally speaking, near the the essential climax of the movie is him getting just destroyed in the middle of the night. By, like
0: it's a full revenant situation. Yeah, it's
1: very, it's very revenant. Right. And he just, he just gets destroyed by this, by this wolf, uh, and ultimately beats it. Um, and I will say the one thing this movie has going for it. And I think it would read even better if this movie were cast properly is I actually was kind of like, I'll give them a, a little bit of credit for the Jennifer Tilly character. Oh um, Yeah because that arc is great, right? Like the whole, again, Lou Diamond Phillips, Agaguk, just being very combative, combative even with her, right? Where he's very adamant about, you know, she gets pregnant and he's very adamant, like it's gotta be a boy because a girl would be useless, right? And she gets pissed off, right? At least so. And she's like, am I useless, right? And like that sort of tees up one of their major conflicts throughout the movie and to a point where, She's just trying to save their kids. So she's like, okay, well we're going to go stay with my people. Right. And, and just, and, and you can deal with it. Right. And he's just pissed off about it the whole time to the point where he's like, we don't belong here. We got to leave. And then that's what brings them back out into the tundra where he gets the shit kicked out of him by a wolf. So like it, it's not, it's got some super interesting shit in there. And then she's the one who saves his life, nurses him back to health, like cares for their kid while this is happening. Right. So like, it, it's got things to it. I just, yeah, somebody to your point, Dan, we'll just, we'll put it out in the ether. Like somebody remake it and do it better. And then maybe it's, it's there. And then in regards to Mifune, I would, we t- got We got to talk about the dubbing. Yeah. Yeah. And we haven't actually mentioned it this, this whole time. Really? He, I, and Moeko, maybe, you know, as far as I could find, he was always dubbed. Right. He he would always sort of phonetically learn his lines uh, so that the mouth, you know, so that his mouth looked right. Anytime he had to speak English in a movie, he would phonetically learn his lines and then but was always dubbed. I feel like in. Uh, but the, the dub guy in, for this one. Yeah. In Red Sun, they I think they do a good job. It's like it they <laughs> they found a dude that sounds like Mifune. So if you did, yeah, yeah. if you did not know that fact, you would think that he just he. You know, learned his specific English lines or something. This movie, not so, not so much at all. I don't even know. I'm gonna drop the Donald Sutherland Mufuni scene that you mentioned in. I'll drop it right here just so you can hear
3: it. You know why I'm here? No. Yes you do. Yes you do. You know everything, don't you? Hmm? You're a shaman. You can see into yesterday. You can see into tomorrow. No. Liquor trader. White man named Brown. No good, no good white man. Came here with the Indian they call Big Tooth. How do you know? Because the white man is dead, killed. Does it matter? (laughs) I give you that. Doesn't matter that he's dead, but it does matter that he's been killed. Someone has to be punished for that. Uh I want you to place in my custody the guilty man. Who is the guilty man? One of her people. No. We picked up Big Tooth in Great Bay. He told us that the white man was killed in this camp. So you believe an Indian? I know he spoke the truth. If you know everything, why do you ask questions? (laughs) Because it saves time. But it's no matter. I'll find the man in the end. And I'll stay here until I do. Then the policeman is welcome as the guest of Krumak. Then tell your people to build me an igloo. No, you stay in my igloo. No, no, I want to live on my own. This is my camp. You'll stay with me. I want nothing to happen to you.
1: And that's what you're dealing with, with Mufuni. So it's weirdly even hard to... Judge his performance quite frankly, and every
0: and every review because I, I I was interested in this movie even just like as a it was like a thirty million dollar plus production it was a Canadian production you know it was a huge flop obviously and and what have you and look Lou Diamond Phillips not unlike Scott Glenn kind of a weird leading man he you know La Bomba was a big hit you you know it was a big star making performance Dan, you mean you're not a
1: fan of bats the film bats.
0: Bats is like the last gasp for <laughs> uh, Lou Diamond Phillips movie star. But it's funny. It's like this is a great example of like an oh, interesting shot. You know, probably uh, I would uh, imagine limitations. You know, he's a Filipino actor. I'd imagine there are limitations in like the roles he was being offered, of course. So
1: it's like there's that to consider. But um, well, there's just the the super shitty like, oh, you look vaguely like this. We'll just cast well, you as yeah, that. Well,
0: It's the Ben Kingsley of it all, right? It's like the Ben Kingsley where it's like, hey, Ben, just, you know, whatever you can do, you know? And it's like, you know, um, yeah, that's obviously tough to even just deal with. But um, I don't even remember, I got in my Lou Diamond Phillips. Why did I, why was I talking?
1: I I was talking about it's hard to judge Mufuni's performance.
0: Oh, yes, thank you. So in reading the reviews, every single review is basically like, and you got Tashira Mufune, the great Tashira Mufune. He's the best. We all love him. The dubbing's not great, but he's really but he's imposing in the film. Like that's every, yeah. you know, it's like a respectful, like, this movie is silly, but we love Mufune. That's every review. You know what I'm saying? And it's an interesting thing to read where, like, by this time, you know, Kurosawa and Mufun, like they were be they were kind of getting their like, thank you for all your great work. You know, early mm. '90s kind of a thing, you know, which is just interesting to, to see. I guess from a Western perspective, just kind of like tip of the hat. Thank you very, you know. Anyway, but
1: um, and Mufune, and as Mueko mentioned uh, at the end of this movie, he decides to ultimately go away with the white men. He takes the uh, he takes the brunt of the murder rap for Lou Diamond Phillips, and he jumps out of a plane and turns into a hawk, and. It does feel very much like aI'm out of here, like just like a, um, yeah, and I don't know. I mean, it's uh, what else to say about this movie other than like i it's not the challenge, which is nice, I guess, like it's i I guess it's nice to, you know, know that one of the last major uh, international roles he took on was at least something that was like semi-interesting and probably even like semi-challenging for him given like the the probably the physical implications of it but um yeah i don't know do you you have yeah i mean
2: i was just i one it wasn't the challenge two it wasn't japanese stereotypes and like random japanese that he had to like say that sounded vaguely japanese to western audience that like was on screen but i also thought it was interesting that he was forced basically to act just with his face because he's so bundled up in verse right? Like, <laughs> like it's basically just like you no know, making like put Mifune into a giant marshmallow and see what he can do. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and and it and again it's like it's that um it's that confinement, right? You like you're like you're like taking things away from him to mm-hmm. uh, to see if he can measure up. And it's you know, this movie and again, and me partially it's probably just cuz we decided to do this episode on him, but this movie and particularly like these latter three movies, he's in a lot, you know, he's in a lot of red sun. He, he dominates a lot of that screen time, but like the challenge and shadow of the wolf, it is very much like, oh, okay, when's he going to come back? Like, I like, you know, and it, and that I think is how, uh, a lot of his movies feel. Right. And it's, it's a credit to, I think him as a performer and him just, uh, you know, every, you, you, even mentioned Moiko. You cited that Akira Kurosawa at one point said that he had too much presence. Right. And, yes. and, um, and it, it, I, you know, that's obviously not necessarily a bad thing and it's when it can be a bad thing is, is in this, is in maybe movies like this, where it's like, he's clearly kind of the only reason to, to take a look at it. And, It just, you're just kind of waiting. You're like, okay, like when's he going to come back? And even, and again, it gets even kind of sadder. It's like when he's on screen as particularly Mm -hmm. in the challenge and it feels like he's not doing much with it. You're like, oh, okay, well then why am I here at all? Right. Um, (laughs) But, um, but yeah, anything else we want to say on any of these movies before we,
0: I wanted, yeah, I I just remembered one thing I wanted to say about the challenge is a co-writer on that movie. Oh yeah. 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 Go is the great John sales. Yep who is John Sayles for me is i mean we've talked about it on this podcast it doesn't it does not get better than Sales for the, for Dan Mecca i love John Sayles and he made a lot of his early money and he still makes some of his money to this day as a writer and a ghostwriter and whatnot and a funny imdb trivia thing that I, I I just liked that i just wanted to share according to co-writer John Sayles John Frankenheimer brought him to Japan to change all of the Chinese characters of the script into Japanese characters in only five days. That's one day. <laughs> yep, one day he went to Kyoto to see the locations for the big battle scene at the end of the movie. I guess you could say location. One location, the conference center. The other four days he was locked up reworking the script in the Imperial Hotel in Tokyo, while Toshirô Mifune took everyone else out for dinner. Uh, poor john sales is like just in his hotel room uh, japanese the acting legend shira is taking everybody out for sake for everything for food and, and it's just like he's just typing away just not not doing anything <laughs> makes me sad for john sales but um i hey, will you know say what,
1: going out to dinner with Toshiro Mufune sounds like it would have been a blast but.
0: and 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 john John Borman says in that interview, which we linked to and we've referenced for Hell in the Pacific. Um, I can't remember what European city was, but they had a tough time working together. He was, on a, he was in Berlin, I think it was. Okay. Yeah. And he went, this is years after the movie came out. And they never worked together again, you know, whatnot. But, you know, they ended with a begrudging respect and whatnot. He went to one of Mufune's restaurants and... And he went with a bunch of people and he went to go pay the bill. And the manager of the restaurant came out and said, oh, this, the meals comped. Um, uh, Shiro Mufune has a list of people that if they ever come into the restaurant, were, were meant to get the meal for that person. And you were on the list. And John Borman always took that as like a a gesture of like, you know, respect from Shiro Mufune, which I always just kind of like that, you know, little, epilogue to the story of Hell in the Pacific, so.
2: Yeah. I mean, Nishime, and as you mentioned before, like you were always, for me, like those two star figures that I think like directors were just like, what the, like, how what do we do with this level of beauty and like this level of presence? And like, some directors decide to just write it into the script and be like, have characters just like, point out how pretty they are or like, point out how like whatever they are but yeah I mean I think like Mifune I just over the course of our conversation I'm realizing that like he works best when he's like almost able to like work off those reactions right like when but when it's like as though when it's presented almost like self-evidently it's when he becomes like flat like there's a kind of like comedy or like the like just like a you know banteriness i guess he has that um though i don't associate him as much of like a talking actor in a way like it actually was like the like what brought his magnetism to the fore. like because i think you really see that in wedding ring and almost even though he doesn't like actually talk to lee he you kind of see it yeah in hell in the pacific yeah yeah yeah, and they they,
1: yeah the band like right like The banter in that movie is excellent, even if you don't know what the banter is, right? Exactly. Um, And it's interesting. One thing we didn't mention about that, Hell in the Pacific, is the way that movie, the way Borman wanted to structure that movie was that you, it wasn't the same movie if you only spoke Japanese and it wasn't the same. Like, you you couldn't know both languages and watch that movie. Yeah. Um, And... So that, that I think, like you said, the banter, I think comes across in that regard, because you just, these people are talking at each other so much, but obviously not to each other because they don't actually understand each other. And,
2: um. Right. But the point of the movie is that you kind of see the communication like take place over time, even the linguistic one. And I think that's actually the reason why I just thought it was different. like the most interesting one out of all yes. while like the planner theory you got even though i mean and because he's dubbed over you, you kind of get the sense that like he's just talking at people <laughs> instead of like with them sure. and that seems to be kind of like yeah where it just gets stale and ossified i guess
1: yeah, yeah. and what so if you had to rank these movies Moico. Mm-hmm. If you had to rank them from like favorite to or we'll start from least favorite. We'll go from worst to best. Uh, if you, if you I mean, to these-
2: definitely the challenge. I don't think you can't say that movie. <laughs> I just no. Um, but then I think uh, I think like Red Sun is actually really interesting. Um but you no, know, definitely the challenge, least favorite. Next is um, Shadow and the Wolf or The Wolf in the Shadow, whatever it is. Um, right. Then, <laughs> uh, Red Sun. Um, and then I think like Wedding Ring or Engagement Ring and um, Hell in the Pacific is tied for me. How I would agree. Yeah. That's yeah
0: like- I, I was going to say, I think I, we all agree kind of, right? Because it's like the challenge has to be five. And then, yeah, Shadow of the Wolf, as interesting as it can be has to be four red, it's sun like red, is,
1: red sun is more watchable like yeah. i would say, yeah it's it's a little easier to get through and, and then
0: for me i would say i would say engagement ring is a more that's definitely my favorite i just of the five just because i though i think on Letterbox i have them both as four stars but wedding ring engagement ring that was definitely my number one and then but a close second is hell in the pacific definitely
1: and they're both really good as we as we usually do on this podcast, when we cover someone who obviously is no longer working, uh, we usually would talk about what we want to see them do. But w- is there anything, Moiko, that you would any Mufune work that you would shout out? That even if it's something that's well known, but just something that like you particularly love.
2: Hmm, that's a good question. It, so. You want it to be a more obscure work, Yeah,
1: whichever. But yeah, maybe something people, might, you know, wouldn't it maybe necessarily be a B-side or one of our B-sides, but like something that people might not know and you feel like they should seek out?
2: I mean, I I just love Drunken Angel so much. I think that's one of his, like, you see him... For me, I, I love thinking about dance on film, and Mifune rarely dances. He kind—it's not like an like he rarely dances with like music that's like diegetic. I think, sure. and in Drunken Angel, he definitely. Rocked. It just there's the way like, and the final scene of Drunken Angel, there he just like
1: with that fight, that um, like clumsy hallway yeah. fight. It's the best. It's so it's like, good. It's
2: just it's like yeah, I would read um. Uh, criticism or just like interview transcripts of like him on his first audition um, that like he Kirikou Takanine saw and Kurosawa saw eventually and like like how everyone described him when he was just like you know starting out and I think like you re- really see all of that energy kind of on screen in Drunken Angel but I think like matures definitely over time um, like my favorite Kurosawa is like High and Low yeah um, 100 i like this and i think like it, it's a very like seeing drunken angel and then seeing high and Lowry, like you kind of see like the mastery with which he kind of like developed his craft yeah. and that's kind of like yeah i mean I, if it, people haven't seen it i would definitely recommend i also just like love um yeah i mean i would watch straight dog 2 is just because i love takashi shimura yeah. and i He's essential for how Croza works, I think. And like
1: Anto as well, right? Yeah, like, definitely.
2: Yeah. yeah, exactly. So like that you see those two work together and you really see, I think, um, yeah, like uh how like the like I mean I call them like the prince and the toad, right? Like yeah. just the like <laughs> uh, uh a guy who seduces not through his appearance but through like, just like, you know, uh, observing and talking with people versus the guy who you can't, all you can see is appearance. Like, I think those two like work really well off each other and they work together so much throughout their career. So watching an early instance of that is really fun. I think.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's what I was going to say as well. I think, you know, if, if you're, if you are not familiar, uh, you know, with the big, Kurosawa ones obviously seek them out. They're great movies and great performances for a reason. But I do think, you know, even myself, right? Like I wasn't really aware of those earlier Kurosawas as much. And so finally watching them, I was like, Oh yeah. Like I would happily recommend them to a- anybody because they seemingly, you know, they're the movies that, those two movies in particular, are the movies that really got him in with Kurosawa and helped his obviously eventual rise to stardom, but they weirdly undercut the stereotypical things that you would think about with Mifune, which I think. Uh, is sort of the most interesting thing about them. One thing I did want to bring up because I tried to track it down as one of our B sides and it was like impossible for me to find, but I do mm-hmm. just want to bring it out. So if anybody else out there on the internet, if you want to listen to this and let us know how we can watch it. Um, Moyko, have you ever seen legacy of the 500,000?
2: No, I haven't. Okay.
1: So that's the only movie he directed.
2: Oh, right. And,
1: and I, the closest thing I could find was, um, was a DVD that you have to like buy from France, um, <laughs> so that was that was the closest thing I could find to being able to get it. Uh, I was gonna try and make it one of our B sides, but it didn't quite work out. Uh, sounds super fascinating. Again, we you know we love stuff like that here on this podcast just for the sheer fact of the only thing he directed so like what is that movie um maybe we'll maybe we'll do like a little special episode at some point and that would uh, be cool and, and cover that eventually but, i will um,
0: i will say we were joking about 1941 which is not a i know it's been like reappraised not a great movie by any means he is funny in it um i will say that like if you do watch it with kind of those 1941 is a tough one, but when he's allowed to do the comedy, it is worthwhile. Though, as much as as much as people kind of try to go back and make that movie a thing. And I've tried to rewatch it with the thing of like, yeah, maybe this is actually great. It's like, no, it's not fun. it's
1: no, it's it's really that movie's really hard. I actually was I was thinking about that movie but recently. But don't you, do you
0: agree, Connor? Like the Mufune moments, like he is it is charm like he's yeah, funny. Yeah, and like
1: look, I love Steven Spielberg as much as the next white dude, right? But like uh Yeah, it, it's tough. But yeah, it's it's hard, I think, even in the grand scheme. Like Spielberg's obviously not uh beyond reproach as far as like racial depictions in cinema and like I would say maybe like the only movie that 1941 beats out is Temple of Doom, right? As far as like wow, problematic right, right. racial <laughs> depictions I, in Spielberg's I, uh filmography oh, but um, can
0: I let me just ask Moeku uh Redbeard have you seen Redbeard the last mm-hmm. is that what do you think about that one just cuz that was the last one they made do you have I haven't seen it <laughs>
2: I wouldn't, I like it, but I wouldn't say it's like the best collaboration by far. Like, I usually rank, I mean, I feel like later, like, Kurosawa for me, like, just like, I mean, while people see Mifune as like the title character, he just had such an ensemble cast of like talented people. And I do think Tatsuya Nakadai is an amazing actor too. And him and Ron is amazing. So, I, the, the, like, I just, Redbeard is not my, like, abs- like, Yeah, I think it would be. I wouldn't like wholly recommend it, definitely see it, but yeah.
0: Interesting. Yeah. No, I just, it's just fascinating. I was saying to my wife earlier, it's fascinating how they could, you you know, and many collaborations have this like they make 16 movies together in like 17 years and then it falls apart. And that's just to me so fascinating where they're like, all right, on 16. Uh, enough's enough you know what i mean like that It just <laughs> yeah. it's its amazing how that can happen but it does happen with so many and, partnerships and look of course. like and
1: if you and if you watch those movies right uh like just generally speaking i mean it's it's as good a run as any but like as anybody in the history of cinema could ever hope for oh there can't uh, be there cannot yeah, be it's, a comparable it's, run. And, and i guess it's i mean this is a good thing to close on but like it's Yeah, I don't know, like, I always knew I liked him as an actor, but admittedly, like, obviously kind of only knowing, like, a handful of, like, the standard hits, like, really kind of diving into his filmography has really just, like, really struck me as, like, as you said, Dan, kind of just, like, maybe the greatest to ever do it, like, and I I sort of, that's, like, only with, like, a modicum of hyperbole, like... It's he's such an impressive, uh, an impressive performer on so many fronts. Um, partially not, you know, obviously, you know, not uh not without the people that he collaborated with, obviously among them being Kurosawa and a few other directors that we mentioned that were able to sort of capture some of his his best uh his best assets. But um, I guess any final thoughts before we wrap it up?
2: Definitely watch the Shakespearean ones. I think. Oh
3: yeah. Oh
2: yeah. Yeah. I mean, obviously, but I think like, uh, just I mean I think Wells and Prosser are amazing she, her, Shakespeare adaptations. Uh, like just. keep and McNeil as uh, Macbeth is, I think one of still one of my favorite
1: adaptations of all time. yeah i mean he's i mean the best he's the he's the best macbeth right like i don't i don't know if there's a i don't know if there's a question the if uh listener if you have not seen throne of blood uh watch it it's great the climax of that movie is incredible it's an amazing piece of uh stunt work from mifune as well it's insane um if you've seen the last samurai documentary um, which, uh, well, I'll shout out quickly. Like, I don't, there are things about that documentary I don't love, but it is a really good crash course in Mifune. If you are not, yeah. if you are not familiar. So, you know, you, that is also on criterion channel. You can seek that out. Um, but, uh, but yeah, Dan, any thoughts from you? Oh man. I mean,
0: he's, I, like I said before, I just can't think of a parallel, right? So that's kind of what led me to say what I said earlier about him being the best. Is just I don't know of another actor who could do all of what he did. And I think, well, go to your point in your piece, just what we're talking about, like whether it's just his face in Shadow of the Wolf, or if it's his whole body in, you know, the early Kurosawa pictures, or High and Low, which is like almost him bottling all that energy into this, like just unbelievable performance i just don't know that anybody did it as as well as he did so yeah i mean i can't wait like i said compared to you guys i have a lot of work to do in my in my uh mufune watching so i just can't wait to just continue to to watch and and learn more so it's been a nice this has been a nice one this has been a really like fun one to get ready for and talk about so thank you and thank you Michael, for being on and talking to us about it
2: i had a lot of fun
1: yeah, thank you. Yeah, we, we
2: really yeah.
0: appreciate yeah. you yeah. taking it. through
2: the ages, non Kurosawa. Teacher, Mipune versus white man. Like, yeah, totally it was great.
1: <laughs> and uh, Moeko, is there anything that you want to plug while we have you? Anything you're working on or, or where where can people find you uh, or find your oh, work?
2: Yeah. Um, well, I have a slip stack in which every two weeks I kind of analyze a uh, still from a movie and um, you can sign up at moego.substack.com for that one Um, the last issue was about Setsukohara and her side eye Um, she was known for her eternal smile and I just uh, think it's much she's much more interesting when you see her smile fall so I'll be doing stuff like that um, every two weeks on it so you can find me on there
1: that's yeah, awesome. big
0: big recommend. Obviously, like we said before on that, um, and then I'll just say the usual at DJ Mecca. Um, always stuff on the film stage, uh, as always. Look for that. Cinevol game nights is probably wrapped up if you are listening, but thank you for watching and thank you for donating. And yeah, I am sure you- it'll come back soon, so don't worry. Um, go ahead, Connor.
1: No, no, no. Yeah, you can. Uh, you can still check. You know, those those are still archives. So if you want to check them out, and even though that prize pack might be gone by the time you listen to it, if you still want to donate to all those wonderful causes, they're all still there in our archives, and you can check those out. Um, yeah, you can find me on Twitter at scruffy looking. Uh, you can find this podcast on Twitter and on Facebook at TFS B side. Um, and just to shout out real quickly, you know, I don't actually know when it's disappearing, but if you do subscribe to Criterion channel, you can find a majority of the movies we've mentioned, not necessarily our B-sides, but a, a majority of the great ones that we mentioned, uh, are all there in a wonderful collection that Moiko wrote her essay for called Mifune Turns 100. Um, that's on Criterion Channel, and you can check that out, and it's great. It's been a really nice little treasure trove these past weeks as, as I've been preparing for this. But um, but yeah, that's it. And to sort of put a spin on an old adage, I'll leave us with this. Mifune once, good for you. Mifune twice, good for me. <laughs>